You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show sits in a different corner of life in Brooklyn, telling New York stories in the voice of the people. And this week, we're reflecting on the last two as we map out the road that lies ahead. First, we check in with our friends up north at Montreal's Free City Radio to hear how the U.S. election is impacting workers in Canada. Next, we head west to Vancouver to hear from an expat on voting from afar. Then, we journey to the Midwest, through the Northeast, and land in Pennsylvania, where we hear from a poll worker on what it was like to support an election in the most watched state in the Union. And finally, back in New York, we reflect on the weekend that everything changed, and Brick Radio Junior correspondent Griff City gets the scoop on some very good news. Freedom, you see, has got our hearts singing so joyfully. It's like a different way of living now. And thank you, world. We always knew that we'd be free somehow. Can't you feel a brand new day in Brooklyn, USA? This is Stefan Christoph in Montreal, and I have worked on a letter from this city in response and in reflection to the election in the United States. The thing really to think about is the fact that U.S. elections impact the entire world. A clear point, one that is known, but what does that mean in terms of policy? What does that mean in terms of day-to-day life in our communities? What does that mean in terms of the ability for people to live with dignity? What does that mean for the rights of workers? What does that mean for migrants? Especially in the context of the colonial borderline that divides Canada and the United States, where there are a series of legal agreements that undercut the internationally recognized rights of migrants crossing from the United States to Canada, I just wanted to highlight on this point, there's a case right now in court in Canada um, around the Safe Third Country Agreement. That's an agreement that basically undercuts the ability for any asylum seeker crossing from the United States to Canada officially to claim refugee status in Canada. When Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau um, declared to the world in the peak of the Syrian refugee crisis, that refugees are welcome in Canada, the important thing to really think about and contextualize in relation to that statement is Canada's location. 
Atlantic Ocean on one side, Pacific Ocean on the other, the far north, if you want to look north, and then to the south, the United States. So the main source or ability, land-based access to Canada for migrants is from the United States. So this agreement, the Safe Third Country Agreement, uh, had declared that the United States was in fact um, a safe haven for refugees, that refugees, asylum seekers' rights would be respected in the United States. Now, this law was challenged in the context of the Trump administration and is now making its way through the courts. Um, so this is something to think about. It is not resolved. It's a legal case that is ongoing. But there were multiple challenges publicly and also legally to this safe third country agreement because it declared the United States as a safe country, which we know in terms of the day-to-day -day reality, the practices of ICE and the U.S. Uh, federal immigration authorities, that the U.S. is not a safe place for migrants, for asylum seekers, for non-status people. So right now, um, that case is before the courts, and we'll see where it goes um, and whether or not the election affects the outcome of that case. Now, for daily life in Canada and in Montreal, each city, of course, has its own sphere, its own feeling, its own vibe. One of the closest major cities to Montreal is New York, Brooklyn. Hello. So obviously, we think about what's happening in New York um, all the time. We watch closely as the COVID crisis hit New York. About a month and a half later, it hit Montreal in a very serious way. Uh, Quebec continues to be uh, one of the most uh, dangerous places uh, in the context of the pandemic within the Canadian Quebec context, Montreal specifically. Um, you know, both of our cities, Montreal and New York, are structured in a way they're more compact, uh, streets are more narrow. Um, there's a lot of people living in buildings, um, and this, of course, is a particular reality for low-income people uh, in the city. Um, and, of course, COVID, the pandemic disproportionately, like in New York region, disproportionately impacted low-income communities and particularly immigrant communities in the city. Montreal North particularly was hard hit, also Côte de Neige and other communities also working-class areas of the city and the east of Montreal. So the election is very important because um, what happens with the pandemic in the United States has consequential and massive impact on Montreal, on Quebec, on Canada. And um, so we're watching what is unfolding, the crisis of the pandemic in the United States very closely. Obviously, the great majority of people in Montreal are relieved that Trump was voted out of office. And I'll just particularly say, I think it's really important to shout out to organizations, grassroots organizations, community organizations that mobilized to vote against Trump with the understanding that this is not the end. Rooted in community organizing, um, organizations in Michigan, workers groups, uh, organizations like Lucha in Arizona, who registered so many Latinx voters uh, and mobilized to vote against Trump, not with 
the idea that the Biden-Harris ticket was some shining light, but acting on the urgency of the moment. Um, and so, of course, Montreal was celebrating when Trump, when it was finally called that Trump would no longer be president. Just on my street in the Villeray uh, district, people went out on their balconies and, and, and clapped and hit pots and pans, reminiscent of a protest tactic that's very common here in Quebec, particularly, casserole, the banging of pots and pans to uh, celebrate and to also express discontent depends on the context. And also I wanted to share a voice of a community organizer um, who I also um, featured here on Brooklyn USA podcast. Uh, here in Montreal, Mustafa Hanawi works with the Immigrant Workers Center. This is a frontline organization that works to support um, some of the most vulnerable immigrants and refugee communities in the city organizing for the rights of asylum seekers, for the rights of immigrant communities, while also looking at how these systems of injustice that disproportionately impact immigrant communities, uh, asylum seekers, play out in the context of work and labor. Um, so I wanted to share some reflections of community organizer Mustafa Hanawi uh, about the U.S. election. To many people outside of the United States, uh, it's it's really it's it's this irony that uh, you know the country, the great promoter of democracy, uh, affects your life so much that in an election, uh, you don't get to vote at the end of the day at at the center of power uh, that you know. Has, has power over the decisions over your life, i.e. the United States, right? That it's yeah. still, uh, that it's that important, but you have no say in it living outside of, of its borders. Uh, I mean, it always throws me back a little bit to, to realize that, you know, when we, you know, imperialism or as a word or as an idea can seem so abstract, but during election time it can feel very real right that uh you know in a way that uh, and especially the people that i work with uh mostly uh migrants and refugee claimants uh you know it, it impacts their decisions on a on a daily basis right and so a lot of the people that we work with you know who are working as essential workers and who we come in contact with many of them are people who uh, initially wanted to stay in the united states but were afraid during the trump years and who walked over uh and the walked u.s over the border literally well literally walked over roxham road and uh made that's us com coming up i'm sorry that's coming up from new york a lot of, in a lot of cases yeah new york new jersey uh, and people who who would have uh, intended or had stayed in the U.S. for a very long time, but were afraid and 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 came up here in those last years. And now uh, there's an irony that maybe people might even try to walk back, you know, uh, because of, of of Biden and the fear that uh, that ICE uh, or that the you know the you know might be reined in and that people might not be deported. So it's uh, it has a great impact in terms of the work 
that we do here. And I think also generally, I mean, how I felt about the U.S. elections or uh, is that, I mean, I can understand the sigh of relief that everyone had in the U.S., you know, absolutely, you know, and don't live there and in terms of, of, of Trump losing and Biden winning, but I think it poses, I mean, I think it's going to make our work uh, I mean, not just harder or more complicated, but, you know, some people see it as like, oh, we'll finally get to the real issues, you know, whether it be uh, fighting systemic racism on, on a real structural level or whether we'll be able to, you know, actually fight for a Green New Deal or... But I think the liberal sort of rhetoric that comes with Biden uh, is going to have some degree of lasting power, especially in the upper echelons of, of society. And we see that uh, here, you know, with the Liberal Party of Canada it being like the, the role model of that, you know, that this idea that uh, you can say the right things and, and, and say Black Lives Matter and Justin Trudeau can take a knee. But then uh, you still have police brutality, you still have colonial violence, you still have uh, all of these institutions and, and structures in play that don't, that don't budge. That was the voice of Mustafa Hanawi, uh, who is a community organizer here in Montreal at the Immigrant Workers Centre. wanted to share his voice as a voice of community work, as a voice of struggle here in the city, and I think an important voice to reflect on. The last thing I'll leave you with um, for this short segment, this contribution, this audio letter from Montreal for Brooklyn, USA, is I just wanted to say it was really beautiful to see people celebrating on the streets right after um, it was announced that Trump would no longer be president. Um, you know, obviously we understand that, you know, the systems of injustice um, that our continuation of, you know, American colonial history and the the violence of the economics of the United States that are rooted in slavery are not going to go away with Trump. But seeing people celebrate and the hope and the optimism and the belief in the struggle for change, I think, was something that was very, very moving. And um, all my love and support for that. This is Stefan Christoph, um, an artist community organizer, sharing these words with you from Montreal for Brooklyn, USA. Hello out there. My name is Hannah Epperson, and I'm recording this vocal memo from deep beneath my covers on election day, because where else would anyone be, really? Besides, it's a monstrosity of a day out. Ominously wet, gray and cold which is pretty typical of Vancouver at this time of year. And there's a northern flicker maniacally pecking away on the side of our house. You can maybe hear him in the background. On a day like this, I can definitely relate to that poor bird hitting his head against the wall over and over again. Anyway, I moved to Canada pre-pandemic, I would like to emphasize, as an artist desperate to maintain permanent resident status in a country that boasts a functioning federal grant system, which supports commercially unviable creative projects. Though maybe don't quote me on that. I guess a socialized healthcare system was also a bit of a pull. But despite having taken up a new roost north of the 49th parallel, 
My heart and countless dozens of hours of my time were devoted to the only presidential candidate capable of stirring me into full-on political engagement, one Mr. Bernard Sanders. After the suspension of his campaign, which coincided cruelly with a beautiful spring bloom, I sank into a bit of a funk, really. Or maybe it was more that I drifted into the doldrums and a haze set in. I've had friends ask what I've been up to this year, and from April on I can't really muster a convincing reply. I know for sure that I requested an absentee ballot. I know I filled it out. I know I sent it in. I think I could even convince myself that it was a rather frictionless experience, though finding a place to print out paperwork was difficult in a city wrapped up in COVID-related caution tape. If I can be totally frank, voting this year actually made me feel pretty dead inside. I reckon I could be feeling deader had I not voted, and deader yet had all my friends and comrades opted out of voting too. Maybe I've fallen into a deviant orbit, or maybe I've lost the plot up here in the cold, wet Canadian Pacific Northwest. Likely I spend too much time alone immersed in literature about this unprecedented moment we're in, where so many overlapping existential threats are breaking at our literally rising shorelines. But the thing is, no matter how this election goes, we're only at the beginning of the biggest fights of and for our lives. Does filling in a bubble sheet and Instagramming I voted stickers absolve us of our general civic burnout? I don't reckon it does. Anyway, solidarity from the Great White North. I'll be waking up with my proverbial spurs on tomorrow, no matter what the results are of this absolutely cursed election, and I'm hoping with all my heart that I won't be alone. I, so sometimes I always tell people, like, I know how to package revolution. And and I do it in a way to where even if you weren't thinking you were coming for that, <laughs> I'm going to slip it in some kind of way. My name is Tanisha Barnes, also known as T. Barnes, global lifestyle entrepreneur. And I am also the founder of the Black Freedom Colony. The Black Freedom Colony is an idea to offer an alternative way of living during this election time, during the time of COVID, uh, to give Black people a reprieve and to reimagine their everyday living and to reconcile pieces of themselves that are eaten away by American life every day. the work that I do is around travel and, um, and exposure. You know, I remember my dad telling me, I would ask him when I was teaching, like, what do you think kids need the most? And he was like, exposure. And I realized just as a people, what we needed the most was exposure. And I started to realize very, quite a few years ago that the American political landscape was really not going to shift and that I needed to start creating opportunities to be in other places. And I needed to help other people, Black people understand that you can live a lot of places and you can have a life a lot of other, in a lot of other ways and live without the weight of racism. 
And so I actually <laughs> spent COVID in Morocco working with Mohammed uh, Spy to build Spy Palace, which is going to be a creative community where we hope to attract a lot of African Americans and, and other people within the community that are looking to build the type of community that we're trying to create in Morocco in the Sahara Desert. And then the world closed. We, I came back thinking I was coming back for a few months while the world was still closed and I was going to pack. And the world has not opened. <laughs> so with that, I was like, I can't stay here though. And so I started figuring out other places to be and uh, picked Tulum, Mexico, had a, an assignment there. What I thought was going to be like a few families going to Mexico with me and my daughter turned into kind of like a movement. I have almost a hundred black African Americans leaving and joining us in community in Tulum, Mexico for three months. Everyone starts to come in October 1st. We'll stay through December. The long-term creative community is in Morocco. So by January, I'll be transitioning to Morocco to open up Spy Palace and hope that some of the people that are still looking to have alternative lifestyles to the United States will follow me to Morocco and, and live in the Sahara Desert with me. I think that a lot of African-Americans find it very hard to access Africa. They have a hard time imagining life outside of the United States. And that is due to the propaganda and the programming. And we are victims just like anybody else of the idea of American exceptionalism. And uh, to break that is very difficult when you've had a lifetime of education around it. Up in the sky, look! It's a bird! It's a plane! And I think that, you know, we underestimate what we do best, which is marketing. You know, America is the best marketer on the face of the earth. It is what we do, right? Our number one export is entertainment. This is what we, we supply the world with an idea and picture of ourselves. And unfortunately for African-Americans, they give the same story internationally about us that they give inside the country. So our reputation is not that great, but America as this, this source of opportunity. And I, I recognize that the positioning, being on the periphery as an African-American of, of a nation that we historically built is so strange. But I think this duality of positioning really enables us to be the leaders of where humanity is moving. And, you know, I keep talking to people about the idea that humans have to be global, that we have to rethink the nation state. You know, it, it really is the source of so much of our conflict and understand ourselves collectively as a human race in a different way. And I think that African-Americans have a very special place in that conversation to lead the charge. I'm definitely homeless in the world. And I think that even when African-Americans don't completely admit it, they feel like the orphanless, you know, they feel nationless. That sensibility, I think, frees us in a way that we haven't quite embraced. I personally think that America has shown us who it is. Like, I, I don't know, um, like I said, I, I've done that. I've, I've protested. I was president of the NAACP from the time I was 12 till I was 18. And then my politics shifted, you know, uh, there's nothing here. And I'm not interested in begging anyone for anything. 
I don't want a seat at your table and I'm not interested in being accepted. And so we're all at different places in our in our development politically. I understand that it's valuable for other people to have that level of protest and to access the political space within themselves. Um, I also know that people are migrant. We always have been. When situations and conditions change, people move. And the conditions here have consistently been killing our spirit. And I think that what Black people find when they move to other communities where they're able to breathe and racism isn't at the core of their everyday existence, from the microaggressions all the way up to the death, right? that they rediscover energy that they never knew they had and they're able to create something beautiful and there's still challenges there's no utopia these are human beings all over the world they're crazy people are crazy everywhere right um but there is a space of freedom and development and air that you have other places do i give up <laughs> I'm okay with that. I don't have any shame behind that. I give up because I have a better life other places. And, and I know that giving up is letting go. And sometimes you let go in order to have better. I just personally will never lay myself in the street for America again. I have nothing else to ask of it. All I want is for Black people in America to protect themselves. You know, um, make sure that you are a registered gun owner because it's your Second Amendment right. You know, and beyond that, I, I don't really have much else to give it. When you, when you give Black people the opportunity to experience peace, because this becomes normalized. America, Black Americans, if you have not been other places, you normalize this. This is not a normal way to live. It is not okay for your kids not to be safe outside. It is not okay for the police to kill you. It is not okay. None of this is okay. And when you normalize it, that's the real problem. So when you're given the opportunity to imagine beyond that, to experience life beyond that, you don't know what'll shift. So again, my hope is just that the imagination is, is opened up and anything can happen from there. Hi, my name is Nick and I work for a voting company. I was in central Pennsylvania, helping to support the election outside of Harrisburg. Yeah, Tuesday was one of the longest days of my life. Uh, I was filled with dread, the same dread that I felt in 2016 at the prospect of a, of a possible Trump win, except I, you know, r ratchet up 10 times. Another part of me, I felt just deep anxiety of supporting an election in arguably the most important state for the entire election where everybody is watching supporting elections or an election is a really really long day for everybody involved so you show up at the elections office and right off the bat you're taking calls you're taking calls from all around the county from poll workers who are trying to set up their machine that you know they touch maybe twice a year Maybe if they're lucky, they've had a poll training in the last few months. In a normal election, things will calm down by about 9, 
10 a.m. But uh, in this case, that was not going to happen. They had me doing things that they just ran out of bodies. One of the big problems in Pennsylvania, or at least in this county in Pennsylvania, was people didn't really know whether their vote counted because Trump had sown so much distrust. So people were showing up to the polls in droves saying, you know, hey, I voted, but I'm not sure if my vote counted. Can I vote again? And so they were casting lots of provisional ballots. And so all the polling places were running out of provisional ballots. So I had to run around to most of the precincts in the county to hand those out. And uh, what I witnessed at every precinct were lines down the street, poll workers saying they'd worked elections for 10, 20 years. They hadn't seen more than two or three people in line. All of a sudden they have 30, almost everybody wearing Trump stuff. It was intense. A lot of, a lot of guns and then polls close. And after polls close, that's when the night gets interesting. There's a USB stick in every voting machine that the poll workers take out and then they drive back to the central elections office. And then one by one, we take each stick, we put them in our server and we upload them to our central count system. I have supported elections before where this has gone late into the night. You have a line of a hundred people out the door, poll workers with their stick waiting for their turn. You have press poll watchers. So you have somebody from the Republicans, someone from the Democrats. As you're merging the sticks, you are printing a report by precinct that are then posted to the county website. And that's exactly where, you know, when you read the New York Times, wherever you get your results from, they're just drawing right from that. Luckily for me and luckily for the county I was in, things went really smoothly. We got all the absentee ballots taken out of the envelopes and counted. Despite all that, it was still uh, a really stressful day and, and, and for everybody. And I think the weight of this election could be felt by all the staff there. You know, they were way overwhelmed and you could feel it with each person you talk to, the weight of the moment. They had turnout in the 70 to 90% range, which was well above where they'd ever been before. And Trump won by, you know, 80, 20. And that was terrifying. One thing you learn when you work in election is how imperfect it is and how much room there is for error in so many different ways, how easy it is to or, or a ballot just to, to get misread or, or just anything can happen, right? But I will say this, based on my experience, people are really professional. I was in a heavily Trump area and I had a feeling they were probably pretty excited about how the results were going uh, early on election night, but you would never have known. And uh, I, I found that so incredibly impressive. They have dedicated their lives to this job just making sure everyone vote counts. So I hope uh, what I've witnessed out in the world is <laughs> really what it's like. I hope my sample size is reflective of, of the rest of America. So, yeah, There's, there you go. That's my election. You know, like, he's still, like, the second most, like, 
Biden got the most votes in, in U.S. history, and he he was second. Right. You know? like, so when you think about it, people voted for him more than anyone except for Biden. You yeah. know, which is insane to think about. So that kind of like made me feel very weird. Um, all the the Four Seasons landscaping thing really made me laugh. But like you know, when you're really really happy, it almost like there's like a hole inside you afterwards because you've just like let everything out and then you're like hmm yeah how yeah, I felt but do yeah. other people have reflections from the weekend I, I also just drank a lot on Saturday and was really hungover all day yesterday <laughs> were you out on Myrtle Avenue Charlie yeah I went down there like right when the news came out and um yeah like Myrtle and Clinton there was just this big impromptu thing not as big as the one that um you sent Sasha that was pretty amazing yeah that was amazing she's kind of like stood there and basked in it and like teared up a lot it was just yeah. kind of like overwhelming seeing like that outpouring of just pure emotion and then um and then later on and then I like um yeah I was busy all afternoon and then um like uh, Saturday night went to there was like this awesome band playing on full there looks like there are bands playing outside like everywhere so right. I saw one on Fulton and then I went to Fort Greene Park where there was like a, this big truck with like a giant sound system just playing dance music God. did you go to the Spike Lee 48 no I didn't know about that it's, I mean it really yeah, just seems like, like so. yeah <laughs> yeah Park, like every block yeah, it looked really crazy. And like Chuck Schumer showed up at McCarran Park. Yeah, he showed up at Grand Army too. Um, oh yeah, Prospect Park was like insane. Were you out there? Yeah, I was. I was like, um, I was just like, like I haven't seen this amount of jubilance since yeah. like Iran beat US in ninety eight in soccer. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> You know, like this amount of like jubilance, like I, it was just crazy. Like we're just, were you guys at Prospect Park on Saturday? No. I was. Yeah, like you saw that everyone would like scream like randomly, like. <laughs> uh, like the wave of cheering. Yeah. There's a bunch of people just crowding and dancing and then you get like random waves of cheering and it made me very happy. Mm -hmm. How did you guys spend your weekends, Emily and Kyrell? Naomi's having computer trouble, but we'll be back. Weekend was pretty chilled. Like I said, Coney Island was pretty quiet afterwards and whatnot. Um, and I have to say the funniest thing that I seen through over the weekend was a post saying that, um, what are you guys doing? COVID is still around. Um, Joe Biden is just the president. He didn't fix the situation. Continue the social distance. Besides that, it was just pretty chill. Emily, how about you? How was your weekend? It was wild. I don't know. Um, it was good. It was a strange day, Saturday. Felt what did very you do? surreal. Not much. I just like went on a walk and like sort of heard the sounds. <laughs> it was funny, like the cheering like really changed between neighborhoods and like the amount of yeah. <laughs> so I did a little I did a little walk, but um yeah, it was good. Lots of like relief and complicated feelings and like the voice in my head that is Kyrell's 
tweet that he saw <laughs> that's like <laughs> you're not allowed to feel happy and then being like but so much relief yeah so yeah I think you're allowed to feel happy you just can't like yeah. be in groups of people like that I don't know. I mean, you can't help but feel happy. Like, even the weather was beautiful on, on yeah. Saturday. Yeah. Really it's beautiful. True. Yeah, my roommate was in Prospect Park, and she said there, the, like, waves of applause would start and, like, ripple out. There's a couple getting married, and people were, like, clapping for them, and then just the whole park, just, like, <laughs> it just echoed out because everyone was just, yeah. Yeah. Um, does anyone have any complicated feelings they want to share or any other feelings about anything? Well, I mean, it is like, you know, there's this like, you know, very small uh, chance thing. Were you guys talking about this, about um, like if, you know, Trump is able to delay the certification of the votes to like oh, December, yeah. that like there's like this slight chance that then the state legislature gets to just pick where the electoral votes go. Which, yeah sort of oh it's yeah i don't know i mean I, yeah i, I just i heard this and I was possibility like, yeah this um i, I probably, know i just I, I'll, I'll feel better i mean you know i feel like i'm still like not a hundred percent so yeah <laughs> yeah anything non-election related of the week of the weekend that was exciting or noteworthy uh, the guy from Jeopardy passed away. Yeah. I oh, grew I up on that with my auntie. Oh. Yeah. I feel like everybody was affected by that one. Yeah. Yeah. He, was it cancer? I didn't really. Yeah, didn't he was battling cancer for like the last, what, 10 years, I think, or something like that. A while, yeah. And he didn't even want to um, give up the show. He was like, this is my passion. I'm going to keep doing it, stay active and whatnot. Um, yeah, but as I reminded my friends with whom I weekly watch Jeopardy, um, Alex Trebek would not want us to be sad. Uh, but, you know, life goes on. The only other election thing I want to mention, which is, like, already stressful, is just, like, now this new tension between like in the democratic party of like the liberal wing and the um centrists like each blaming each other for not performing as well and um meanwhile you had like you know i don't know if you guys saw that like fox news poll that 70 percent of all americans democrats and republicans support universal health care yeah Everybody so, wants health care. I don't, yeah. Everybody wants the progressive. Yeah, taxpayer, I feel like it should be included, but. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that'll basically be like, you know, the um, ongoing uh, point of contention for the yeah. next two and four years. Hi, my name is Lori Lander. Uh, today, I'm calling from Merrimack, New Hampshire, where uh, outside the polling place for Ward 3, where I've been doing voter protection as a poll watcher here for the Democratic Party. I've been uh, doing voter protection poll watching since 2004 in every presidential election, and also in the 2018 election in Georgia, where Stacey Abrams was running for governor because I care deeply 
that everyone who is eligible to vote should be able to vote unimpeded and unsuppressed. Voting today in New Hampshire was no drama, which was great. We had about 80% turnout and about uh, 180 people registered to vote and voted today because there's same-day registration in New Hampshire. I am leaving Ward 3 right now to head over to Ward 1 where the three wards in town will be collected and they'll come up with a final tally for the entire town. It's a town of about 26,000 people. So that's where I'm heading right now. Bye. My name is Larry Ward. I am an election commissioner in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we just finished up voting. We ended up with uh, over 40,000 people voting out of a total electorate of 73.5 thousand voters. The voters had a great time. Everybody was happy. No problems at any of our polling sites. The workers were enthusiastic and energetic and did a great job helping everybody. All in all, everything went very smoothly here. Um, and now we're here getting ready to count the votes and see where the chips will fall in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Stay tuned and we'll see what happens. Hey, welcome to Griffin World. Today, I have my Aunt Angie and her new wife, Sarah. I have a few questions for them and let's get going. My first question is, how did you meet? We met in Pennsylvania. I was living in Pennsylvania at the time, and Sarah was also living in Pennsylvania, and we met on an online dating site. <gasps> Ooh. My second question is, what do you like about each other? I think Sarah is beautiful on the outside and the inside, and she's smart, she's kind, she makes me feel safe and secure, and she's very family-oriented and wants to make those around her happy. Aw. My third question is, when did you get married? We got married on um, November 3rd, 2020 of this year. Oh. And my, que my next question is, why did you get married on Election Day? Well, uh, we got married on Election Day for a couple reasons. Probably the first being because we wanted to get married and we wanted to bring something, um, you know, have something good happen in 2020. So we chose, you know, that date for that reason. But also because of the impending election, we wanted to get married before they selected a new president, just in case that same-sex marriages were going to go away. We wanted to make sure that um, we got ours done before, you know, a new pre or a president might say that we couldn't. <gasps> Ooh, okay, that, that was a great answer. I loved it. And were you able to vote? Yep, we both voted by mail. Angie voted in Maryland by mail, and I voted in Pennsylvania by mail. Ooh, okay, and my final and last question, how do you think you will celebrate your anniversary? Well, we're hoping that by the time we get to our one-year anniversary that we're able to travel again, hopefully by plane, 
and we're hoping that we will be able to go somewhere tropical and somewhere beachy. Ooh, well, that is the end of this segment. Thank you for listening, Brooklyn. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barghi. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer. And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Brick Radio Junior Correspondent Griff City, Taylor Cook, Lauren Germain, Stefan Christoph at Free City Radio in Montreal, Tanisha Barnes, Hannah Epperson, and all the wonderful people who left messages, testified, and shared their experiences with us. And now we want to hear from you. We want to know who you are and what keeps you tuned into Brooklyn, USA. If you wouldn't mind helping us figure that out, check the show notes for a link to our listener survey. And as always, if you want to tell us a story or somehow end up on the podcast, check the show notes for a link to our guide on recording a voice memo on your mobile phone and sending it to us on the internet. And if you like what you hear or think we missed something, comment, like, share, and subscribe and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. Question one. What is the Electoral College? This is my answer. I think it is... Oh! Oh, the place that presidents go before they are elected. Okay. How many presidents can you name? I can name... I think only three. I have a book, but I don't read it that much about the presidents. Uh, George Washington, Lincoln, oh, actually four, uh, Donald Trump, and Barack Obama. You can't think of another president? No, I cannot. In the entire history of the United States? In the entire history of the United States. <laughs> what about the one that was married to Hillary? Who? 